Tēnā koutou katoa and hello everybody. Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Eidelberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makoro, Auckland. And g'day, I'm Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Gangaloo country in Queensland. And before we dive into our conversation today, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. The Lento Intervention is an Australasian educational and advocacy platform dedicated to raising awareness about the current climate and health crisis. And on this podcast, we invite guests to chat about topics that will inspire you to take action to improve your own health and the health of the planet. So please subscribe to and share this podcast and visit our website for the full show notes. And don't forget to buy us a coffee if you'd like to support our work. Season 2, episode 44, and we have two very special guests. Well, actually, (laughs) it's just us. Um, Emma and I were invited to present at the Doctors for the Environment Australia conference on the 16th, 17th of October, titled Idea 2021, Planet, Health and Hope, a two-day conference that provided an appraisal of the climate crisis from scientific, medical, cultural and political perspectives. So we were absolutely honoured and privileged to have been asked to present. Uh, This was to be held in Adelaide, but with the ongoing COVID restrictions, this was online. So we were asked to speak on the second day of the conference, which focused on climate solutions. And I think most of our listeners, if you're regulars, will be able to guess what we actually presented on. So of course, we focused on the sustainability of our current food system and the steps we need to take to eat and live within planetary boundaries. Now, as you will tell from our delivery, we were a little rushed uh, and we certainly used up our our allocated 30 minutes. Uh, We had a lot to squeeze in, but what that meant was there was no time to answer any questions. We had over 50 comments in the Zoom feed during that presentation, quite a few of those being questions. So the good news is, is that we will get to answer them. Yeah, so we'll be doing a dedicated follow-up episode to this one, answering those attendee questions, but we're also going to throw it open to our podcast listeners too. So if you have any questions after listening, please do get in touch. We'd love to answer your curly cues. Um, So contact us before the 28th of November if you'd like to have your question featured on that Q&A session. Now we're going to go, I'm really, really excited to have this next pair of people coming to present to us on diet and agriculture as a solution to the climate health crisis. So who I've got Ben Eitelberg and Emma Strutt from The Lentil Intervention. And The Lentil Intervention is this um, wonderful sort of advocacy and education project that's been going on for, I don't know, it's a few years now, I think. Um, and they do a great podcast. So if you, you know, like they do... They interview various people about once a month, it seems to be. You seem to always be active on my social media feed anyway um, about what we can do as far as diet and agricultural solutions and the sort of the bigger picture of diet and ag. Obviously, this is a really big topic and, um, you know, I've asked them to sort of condense such an important topic into 30 minutes. So, um, you know, I have so much faith that you two will present something beautiful and um, we will let you go for it if in your own time Ben and Emma thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the intro Kate. Uh, tēnā koutou katoa and hello everybody. 
Uh, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. It's an absolute privilege uh, for us to be invited to present our very first as the Lentor Intervention. I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makoro, which is Auckland, and Emma is in Gungaloo country, Blackwater in Queensland. So hopefully this does not impede on the presentation. Uh, but if it feels like we are rushing, it's because we are. We have a lot of content to squeeze in, as Kate mentioned. Also, some of the slides, you will notice a QR code on the top right-hand corner. Those link you directly to a relevant podcast guest we have interviewed and would be a fantastic subject expert to gain more insight from. So have your phones handy, scan those codes. Uh, and with that said, Emma, let's take it away. All right. So firstly, to set the scene a little, um, diet is actually really important for both human and planetary health. Unfortunately, nutrition is often undervalued for the impact it can have on disease risk and quality of life. So just to point out the latest update from the Global Burden of Disease study, which placed dietary risk as the second leading cause of death for females and the third leading cause of death for males. How we're going in Australia specifically, though, is not too great. So we're nowhere near hitting our targets for recommended intake of fruit and veg. One third of our calories in adult diets comes from discretionary foods and for teens, it's even worse. And while there seems to be a hyper focus on getting enough protein in the diet, perhaps we need to shift focus to fiber, which is basically a proxy for intake of plant food, as currently less than 20% of adults meet the suggested dietary target here. So I think you can see from that very quick overview that our current diets aren't serving us well in terms of health, but what about impact on the environment? So to try and put things into perspective here, this chart depicts grams of CO2 equivalent emissions from various activities and diets. And as you can see, the global average for food emissions per person per day is quite similar to that 40 kilometer car trip. But then if we take a look at the Australian average, that's a big jump up to 14 and a half kilograms of CO2 per person per day, well ahead of that global average and a huge difference to where we need to get to to limit, one point, uh, limit warming to 1.5 degrees. Considering some countries actually need to increase their food footprint to ensure nutritional adequacy, it's quite evident that we in Australia are contributing far more than our fair share when it comes to diet related emissions. So globally, it's not a pretty picture. Even if fossil fuel was halted, emissions from our global food system alone would render it impossible to limit warming to 1.5 degrees and potentially threaten even that two degree target. So we've got a lot to improve on. The general consensus is that our current food system is responsible for a third of human greenhouse gas emissions. It's the single largest greenhouse gas emitting sector in the world but that also means it's our greatest opportunity. So apologies for this very busy looking Sankey diagram, but this gives a really good breakdown of exactly where those greenhouse gases are coming from along that paddock to plate journey. So the vast majority of emissions are from agricultural production and land use and land use changes. Interestingly, transportation only accounts for 4.8%. So purely in terms of greenhouse gases, Buying local is not actually as important as the type of food that you're buying and that type of food that's most detrimental is meat. Um, not all greenhouse gases are created equally either. So methane emissions account for a third of the food system emissions. This is mainly from livestock. And the reason that methane is so important is that yes, it is a short lived gas compared to CO2, but it has significant global warming potential. 
So 34 times more detrimental when measured over 100 years, but over two decades, it's a massive 86 times more powerful. So cutting methane is the strongest lever we have to slow climate change over the next couple of decades, which are the crucial decades. So right now, our current food system is failing us and transforming it might be our best bet for meeting the Paris Climate Agreement. In terms of human health and the planet's health, if we continue on with a business as usual mentality, we're likely to overstep five of the nine planetary boundaries and achieve only 10 of the 17 SDGs. And in regards to the economy, if we were to actually factor in the hidden cost of the food system, so the costs associated with cleaning up the environmental damage, we would actually be $2 trillion in the red per annum, and that's set to rise. So not only is our global food system a significant source of greenhouse gases, it's by far the largest cause of terrestrial ecosystem destruction, accounting for 50% of global habitable land, of fresh water consumption at 70% of global use, of waterway pollution due to overuse of nitrogen, phosphorus and the intensive livestock practices, and also of biodiversity loss. So we're currently living through the sixth mass extinction event, one that is largely man-made and our food system plays a huge role in that. And as Emma's just pointed out, 50% of our habitable land is used for agriculture, which is already just ridiculous. However, what makes it even more absurd is that over three quarters of it is used for livestock yet it only provides 18% of global calorie supply and 37% of global protein supply. And this is from both meat and dairy. Not an efficient use of our land, especially when we need to convert that land, and that is where the problems begin. One-tenth of global wilderness areas have been lost in the last two decades, particularly in the Amazon at 30% and Central Africa 14%. The main driver for deforestation is cattle at 40%. 0.7% and a component of the all-season cereals will be for livestock too. Cattle ranching is the biggest driver of deforestation in the Amazon, followed by soybean plantations as feed for the cattle. Yet, when while the world focuses on the Amazon, the same destruction continues in Central Africa, Southeast Asia and Australia. As a quick side note, a common misconception when it comes to soy production is that, well, we're clearing forests to grow these crops for human consumption when that's actually not quite true. 77% is used for animal feed and predominantly for poultry and pig. Tofu, tempeh, soy milk make up just 6.9% of global production and a significant portion of soybean oil is likely used in ultra-processed foods, which is another issue altogether. This QR code here is Dr. Mark Messina, internationally recognized as a soy expert who provides all the reasons why we should be consuming plenty of soy. So we look at this great land that is Australia and the colors really do put it into perspective, especially the red, which represents cleared forests and bushlands. Now this is the latest visual we could find and that is already 13 years old. And I can assure you that even more forests and bushland have been degraded and cleared since. To make matters worse, most of the forest classed in New South Wales as degraded, uh, that's in the brown, are actually extensively cleared areas. This is a flaw in the vegetation asset states and transitions data set. The main driver for all this at 75% pasture for livestock. The QR code is for Gerard Vedderburn Bishop, a past principal scientist who personally witnessed 4% of the world's deforestation over a 20 year period in the Queensland region. So taking into account how much of the forests and bushlands in Australia have been cleared and degraded, just 50% remain intact. 
Eastern Australia in particular is a global deforestation front with Queensland accounting for over 50% of Australia's total losses of native forest and livestock production being the driver for 91% of that clearing since 1998, 1988, sorry. To put it all into context, every three minutes, an area of forest and bushland the size of the MCG is bulldozed. Think how many animals that are caught up in this are killed. The QR code here is for Professor Corey Bradshaw, a global ecologist and author of a perspective article titled Underestimating the Challenge of Avoiding a Ghastly Future. So what is actually the problem with deforestation? The immense irreversible consequences that are felt worldwide. By removing the trees, there is a long list, some of which are a chain reaction such as degraded water quality, ocean dead zones, and destruction of reefs. Referring to the coastal region of northern Queensland, as you can see by the image on the left, this increased erosion and river sediment from deforestation is a major threat to the inner shelf reef and benthic ecosystems, particularly those of the central and southern Great Barrier Reef. The QR code is for Michal Siovesky, award-winning filmmaker of the documentary Takeout, exposing the real drivers behind the Amazon forest fires and devastating def deforestation rates. So I mentioned biodiversity loss before, but our food system is also becoming increasingly narrow. Of the 6,000 plants cultivated for food, only nine account for 70% of all food produced today. About one third of fish stocks are classified as overfished and outside of Australia, bees are disappearing. So this threatens the sustainability of our food system, a system that is already suffering from increasingly unstable yields due to climate change. It's not just what happens on land either, but there's also huge concerns below. So the industrial fishing industry is quite problematic and a significant contributor to ocean plastics. We don't have time to go into that in detail, unfortunately, but I did just want to touch on aquaculture because it, because it now actually supplies us with more seafood than wild catch. Generally, the efficiency of aquaculture is slowly improving, so that's a positive, but this type of production comes with a host of serious environmental concerns, as I'm sure anyone in Tasmania would be well aware of. Um, so some farm species still actually consume more fish than is produced, salmon being one example here. Farm fish are also regularly kept in filthy, overcrowded conditions that fosters disease. Because of this, the industry relies heavily on antibiotics. In Chile, for example, which is the second largest producer of farm salmon, over 382 tonnes of antibiotics were used on their fish in 2016. The total amount of water made available by the World Hydrologic Cycle is sufficient to provide the current world population with a minimal amount of fresh water. Yet more than 1 billion people are without adequate drinking water. Agriculture consumes about 70% of fresh water and there are significant disparities depending on what it is used for, such as 297 litres for one litre of soy milk versus 1,000 litres for one litre of dairy milk. And as a slight digression, it takes between 340 to 620 litres of water to produce one litre of Coca-Cola. And then there's the negative output from intensive uh, animal and crop agriculture, which leads to polluted and lifeless waterways, such as ammonia and nitrates. Whilst increased levels of nitrates is a global problem, more specifically where intensive agriculture occurs, for example, overuse of fertilizers and high herd sizes, we do not need to look too far to really understand the repercussions. So let's use Clean Green New Zealand as the case study, mainly because we have more data available, and to be fair, we've gained more insight into this over the past couple of years. 
The greatest negative impact on river quality in New Zealand in recent decades has been high producing pastures that require large amounts of fertilizer to support high densities of livestock. Just three examples of the outcome of intensive dairy farming in particular are 82% of our waterways and 80% of lakes and pasture catchment areas are polluted. We have the highest proportion of endangered freshwater fish in the world at approximately 74%. And we have the highest rates of colorectal cancer of the OECD countries in Canterbury and Southland. Referring to the illustration, one can see how much of New Zealand is affected. You're looking at the red-brown areas. And yet that is based on a high threshold. Let me explain. Unpolluted groundwater contains a maximum of 0.25 milligrams per litre of nitrate. Streams begin to struggle at 0.6 milligrams per litre. And at 0.87 is when the risk of colorectal cancer begins to increase. At 2.45% of stream life is deemed as sick in lab experiments. The New Zealand and Australian standard for maximum nitrates permissible is 11.3, likely because that is the same level set by World Health Organization to prevent blue baby syndrome. But the problem with this is that this limit is 70 years old now. And considering we have learned so much over this time, one would think it is high time to adjust its limit. The QR code is Dr. Mike Joy, a highly regarded and outspoken freshwater ecologist that we simply highly recommend you listen to. And we even have two interviews. And lastly, I mentioned either deforestation as a cause, uh, uh, sorry, I mentioned earlier, deforestation as a cause of dead zones. The primary cause is nutrient pollution, excess nutrients such as nitrates that wash into the network of waterways, stimulating an overgrowth of algae, which then sinks and decomposes in the water. The decomposition process consumes oxygen and depletes the uh, supply available to healthy marine life. What you're seeing here is what most of us believe to be the biggest dead zone in the world, yet this is merely a tenth of the biggest. A more recent discovery has found the Gulf of Oman to be the biggest at a whopping 165,000 square meters. And just like pesticides are used to minimize the loss of crops, antibiotics are used extensively to ensure maximum profits, especially for disease prevention and growth promotion. And it is likely this will continue to increase. This clearly is not working in our favor. Agriculture uses, con uh, uses contribute significantly to the problem of antibiotic resistance with as much as 70% of the antibiotics produced in the US used in food animals. It is also particularly concerning as infected livestock can be asymptomatic. And then of course, this conference is online thanks to a zoonotic disease, but salmonella, E. coli, rabies, influenza, various iterations of coronavirus are all zoonotic diseases. They comprise 60% of all infectious diseases in humans, and this is increasing with the emerging diseases. And the way we treat our land, our ecosystem as a whole, is effectively driving these increased occurrences. So moving on to food waste now. Food is wasted for a variety of reasons, but one thing that is quite certain is the percentage of food waste is too high. So an estimated 1.3 billion tonnes of food, or roughly 30% of the global production, is wasted each year. In regards to greenhouse gas emissions, if food waste were a country, it would be the third biggest emitter behind China and the US. In Australia, we waste 7.6 million tonnes of food each year. Think of that as chucking out one in five of your grocery bags. 
So this accounts for 17 and a half million tonnes of CO2 emissions. To put that into perspective, that's roughly equivalent to the annual emissions from Hazelwood Power Station, which is considered Australia's highest emitting coal-fired power station. Environmental impacts aside, considering one in five Australians will experience food insecurity, the amount of waste in our current food system is unacceptable and unethical. Something else we need to talk about more is the environmental impact of discretionary foods. So these are non-essential foods providing no significant nutrition and on average discretionary foods actually account for roughly a third of the total diet related water, energy and land use and a third of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions. So given the crucial role of food for health outcomes, nutritional quality should be seen as a core component of food system sustainability. So let's talk solutions. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization defines a sustainable food system as a system that delivers food security and nutrition for all in such a way that the economic, social and environmental basis to generate food security and nutrition for future generations are not compromised. So that includes eating for our health, eating for the planet and creating sustainable communities. A 2018 publication studied the environmental impacts of 38,700 farms and 1,600 processes, packaging types and retailers for 40 different agricultural groups. The outcome? High impact beef producers create 105 kilograms of CO2 equivalents compared to just 0.3 kilograms of CO2 equivalents, including all processing, packaging and transport for low impact beans, peas and other plant-based proteins. And when it comes to land use per 100 grams of protein, 300 square meters for beef versus a measly one square meter for legumes. On this graph, the pink line makes a very clear distinction between animal-based products and plant-based foods when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, acidification, eutrophication, and of course, land use, which we have already spoken about. So eating less meat certainly helps with emissions, but we're no longer at a point of doing something a little better. We now need to be doing the best we can, and that is transitioning to a whole food plant-based diet. So I'm hoping most people are familiar with the Eat Lancet Commission. The planetary health diet was the first attempt to provide scientific targets for healthy and sustainable diets that can be universally applied. So a planetary health plate should consist by volume of 50% veggies and fruit, with the other half of the plate consisting primarily of whole grains, plant protein sources like beans and lentils, unsaturated plant fats, and modest amounts of animal proteins if you choose to eat them. And when I say modest, I really do mean it. So if you were to eat these foods daily rather than, say, bank it up and have a weekly meal, beef, lamb and pork is to be limited to 14 grams per day, chicken and other poultry to 29 grams, fish to 28 grams and eggs to 13 grams. So really minimal amounts of animal product. Now, I know some of you may have concerns regarding the nutritional adequacy of plant-based diets, but really you needn't. So apologies for this very text-heavy, boring-looking slide, but this is an excerpt from the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics position paper on vegetarian and vegan diets. So this is the largest dietetic body in the world, and it's their position that if appropriately planned, and can I just say what diet shouldn't be, um, vegetarian and vegan diets are healthful, nutritionally adequate, can provide health benefits, reducing the risk of certain diseases, it's more environmentally sustainable, and this way of eating is appropriate for all life stages. 
So modelling has suggested that it is biophysically possible to feed 10 billion people on a healthy diet within planetary boundaries. Transitioning to a plant-based diet is the most important single tool in our toolkit, but that alone is not enough. So success hinges on multiple actions. We also need to ensure the healthfulness of those plant-based galleries. So intake of discretionary foods needs to be decreased. Efficiency of the agricultural sector needs improving and transition to more regenerative farming needs to occur. And finally, we need to reduce our food waste by half. So only the combination of these key things will get us to where we need to be. And for this to occur, we need policy changes and widespread education campaigns. So what can you do as doctors? Um, please don't be too overwhelmed. You're not expected to be the experts on food within the healthcare setting, but there are a large number of ways to get involved and accelerate change if you're wanting to. And I'll run you through some of what I think are most critical. So firstly, get political. So the primary barrier to enacting policies to create healthier, more sustainable food systems is opposition from large food companies, primarily the producers of ultra-processed food and the meat and dairy sector. There's a reluctance from politicians to tax and regulate, even putting restrictions on the amount of junk food marketing that targets children, which is huge, by the way, seems near impossible. Um, and this policy inertia, given the current state of affairs, is unacceptable. As primary healthcare providers and as one of the most trusted occupations, doctors are uniquely positioned to make some noise in this space and get people listening and talking. Um, I'd highly recommend scanning that QR code and listening to our interview with Professor Boyd Swinburne for more information here. Next is take a multidisciplinary approach. So I fully appreciate just how under the pump doctors are. You'd be hard pressed to make meaningful dietary changes in a 10 minute consult, let alone cover everything else you need to. So consider utilizing dietitians more that can educate the patient on plant-based diets or referring on to evidence-based health programs. Don't forget that this is going to be incredibly helpful for patient health outcomes. Next is act local. So this is twofold. Think about how you can advocate for sustainable food practices in your workplace. And I've got a number of examples listed there, depending on what sector you work in. But secondly, on a personal level, walk your talk. So eat your veggies and your legumes and where you can support initiatives that increase local and urban food um, production. Next one is community outreach. So educate your community. You will be listened to because you're well respected. A lot of people don't actually know the impact on the environment that their diets have. So put yourself out there more. Consider utilising social media. It doesn't have to be hard. It can be as simple as sharing sustainable cooking tips or your favourite recipes. Cheeky plug for our podcast here, but also consider being a podcast guest. Basically, the aim is to make sustainable diets seem more achievable, more inviting. So we need to start talking about it because it needs to be seen as more of a social norm rather than this weird foreign concept. And really importantly, consider culture. So not only when discussing diet, of course, dietary changes need to be culturally appropriate and sensitive, but there needs to be a greater emphasis on Indigenous knowledge as we adapt to this changing climate. So if you have a platform, use it to promote the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people working in this space. Australia's Indigenous population have been the environmental stewards of this land for thousands of years, and Western food crops and livestock really have taken a toll on this land. 
a lot of what we grow here is not ideal to the climate and yields will continue to be affected as our climate becomes more unstable. So cultivating more native plants and bush foods, kangaroo grass would be a perfect example here, and promoting traditional farming methods could be a key component of making our food system more sustainable and fit for purpose in Australia, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders need to be leading the way on this. And lastly, you, the health sector has a profound responsibility and opportunity to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to limit the widespread health harms of climate change. Greenhouse gas emissions from healthcare are substantial and the healthcare sector has generally lagged most other industries in reducing its carbon footprint. The sector not only has a responsibility, but an opportunity to take action and in so doing will only yield personal health and economic benefits. And we too at the Lentil Intervention are taking action. Two campaigns in particular that I will mention, the HEAL solution, which is an immersive experience that takes a deeper dive into the solutions and equips participants with knowledge and tools to take action for both personal and planetary health. And there's the Athletes for Nature, which is a tribal movement of outdoor enthusiasts that encourages more people into the outdoors, appreciate the importance of nature and take action to protect it. And perfect example is a plogging day that we're holding at the end of this month. And that concludes our information overload, and we really do hope we shared some useful insight and some inspiration to take action. Please do visit our website where we have a whole bunch of resources, sign up to the newsletter, which I've actually seen already a few notifications, so thank you. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, uh, follow us on our social channels and support us. We're still a startup. We have big ambitions to lead change in the communities, but we do need financial support to deliver. Uh, and our final QR code, it's our very own conference host, Dr. Kate Wiley, who we interviewed uh, a little wee while ago. So thank you very much. Oh, Ben and Emma, that was fabulous. Thank you. Apologies thank you. for rushing. We had so much we wanted to cover and we had slides we had to cut. So sorry if it was boop, 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 boop. But oh, yeah, no, but it was great because you just, you had this beautiful narrative arc and you kept it going and the full momentum was fabulous. And um, That's actually yeah, half the presentation we started with. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we probably could have given you a day. <laughs> you would have happily given us a day. Um, yeah, so I just want to, you know, just really acknowledge your expertise in this area. I didn't say that you were both accrediting practice, practicing dietitians, that Emma is in the um, Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine, that Ben is a vegan nutritionist and an um, ultramarathon runner. But, you know, your expertise just absolutely came out in your presentation. I think everybody here is going to be wanting to look at your website and have a bit of a squizzy about all the fabulous things that you do. Um, yeah, I just, I think everybody just show your appreciation to Ben and Emma and thank you so much for your time. I just think that was absolutely wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends. 